what we usually do this time is to have the kids come on up about fifth grade and under. So we have lots of stuff up on the stage. For, so for today, uh, you're going to come and sit right down here on the floor on these stairs right here in front of me. So come on up and find a spot to sit. All right, come on up. Feel free to bring somebody along with you if you'd like. Mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. Hey. Now find a spot to sit. Oh, you can stay down here this time, okay? Right here is fine, Charlie. Good. Find a spot. All right. Come on up. Good to see everyone. This is exciting, huh? Look at the beautiful decorations. Pretty neat. Good. All right, so today we're actually starting something a little different than usual. We're, doing, we're entering a time called Advent. Does anybody know what the word Advent means? What does it mean? Ooh. That's kind of a tough one. Okay, yeah, we're kind of counting down until Christmas. But that word Advent means a coming or arrival. So Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. And what do we celebrate coming or arriving at Christmas? Okay, maybe the presents coming. Who do we celebrate? Who comes at Christmas time? Santa. Go ahead. Santa, maybe? Does he come to your house? Jesus, yeah, right? Jesus. We celebrate Jesus coming, right? So Advent is a time where we uh, talk about Jesus coming. I have to have a talk with some parents a little later on. So. <laughs> Jesus is who we celebrate at Christmas, right? He's who's coming. And so one of the things we use to help us celebrate Advent or anticipate Jesus coming, right, is the Advent wreath. Now we have a big one over there. And so the Advent wreath is the, the green wreath with a number of candles in it, right? And so each week before Christmas, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus coming, and we're going to light uh, the candles of the Advent wreath. So today, the first candle we're going to talk about is the expectation candle. Everyone say expectation candle. Good. The word expectation means it's a, a belief that something will happen. It's expecting that something will happen, believing that. So the people of God believed that a Savior would be coming. For a long time before Jesus came, the people of God believed that a Savior would be coming. And that was predicted. It was told throughout the whole Old Testament. Rejoice. We read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, God's people, uh, they, they were rejoicing. They were shouting for joy. And they said, behold, your God is coming. Your, excuse me. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. So this king, this savior who is going to be coming, uh, they were rejoicing over that. He'll be righteous. He'll be pure and holy and act rightly before God in all things. And he would have salvation. He would come to save his people from evil and from their sins. And so because the Old Testament told of this coming king, this Messiah, this savior, the people waited and they were expecting him to come. They believed it would happen. And so now I'm going to ask Talia to light the first candle, the first one in front there, the purple one. After she lights it, it might take a little bit for the flame to get high enough where you can see it, but she's going to light it over there. So that's our first candle. All right, so we have our first candle lit, and who knows, what is the name of that first candle? expectation candle, right? Because we believe, the people believed God would be sending the Savior. And we look forward to Jesus and Christmas. So thanks for coming up, everybody. You can go back and have a seat. (coughs) 
All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Let's do this again. We're in the book of First Chronicles chapter 17. First Chronicles chapter 17. If you need to use a Bible in the seat in front of you, it's on page 348 in those Bibles. First uh, Chronicles chapter 17. We'll be doing the whole chapter. <clears throat> the Bible is filled with new beginnings. Creation, of course, Noah after the flood, beginning creation again in a sense, Israel out of Egypt, establishing and creating his people, Christ's coming was a new beginning, uses creation language, Acts 2, when the church got its start, that's a new beginning, Uh, and then at the end of the Bible, there's a new creation, so the Bible is carried along by this theme of creating new, beginning again, and then even think of the things that God has given us. Marriage is a new beginning. Births, you coming to Christ, being made alive is a new beginning. So we have lots and lots to learn in the Bible about new beginnings. The one truth that is central in all of these new beginnings in the Bible is that the Lord does it, and he does it for one purpose. All of these beginnings are God's doing alone. Nobody helped him create the world. Nobody helped him recreate you in Christ. It's all his work. And he does it for one purpose. His glory. God created this world to declare his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. God rescued Israel and he said, I didn't do it for your sake, but for the sake of my great name. Marriage in Ephesians 5 exists to show Christ's love for his church to the glory of God. And God makes sinners alive in Christ to magnify the greatness of his grace. God does new work for his glory. So here we are at a new beginning. What for? For his glory. So ask yourself that. You two-thirds that put in significant time in making this happen. Why did you do it? What's it for? You are going to be a part of this church in years to come. Why? What's your reason? Is it for the glory of God? We'll see a similar thing in 1 Chronicles 17. So let me read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that night, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
Now, therefore, thus you sh- shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all of your enemies from before you. I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will subdue all of your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love for him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you have redeemed from Egypt. And you have made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, God became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. Let's pray. Father, would you bless not only the reading of your holy word, but the preaching of it now. Please speak to your people by your spirit. Deliver it with his power, that we might walk in obedience to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a bit of an Advent text, even though it's aimed more at uh, a new building. We see a promise going forward of a descendant of David who would sit on an eternal, forever throne reigning over an eternal kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 1, we have a genealogy of Jesus Christ, and the first words are, son of David. So 
Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is connecting what we just read in 1 Chronicles 17 of a promise of a king who would sit on David's throne, a descendant of David forever, with Christ. And so this is an Advent text. This is a promise of a coming king who would reign forever. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible uh, or not, I just want to fit this in the story of the Bible, if I can, quickly. There's really four parts, if you want, to Scripture. You have creation, you have fall, you have redemption, and then you have consummation. Genesis 1 and 2, we read of the creation of everything, including us. In Genesis 3 and onward, you have the fall. We fell into sin. God created us, and immediately, in Adam and Eve, we disobeyed. And so as you heard earlier, all are born into sin, each one of you. And then in Genesis 3, there's a promise. God promises Eve an offspring, a son born of a woman who would crush Satan's head and undo everything that Satan has done. And so the rest of the Bible is concerned with that statement of redemption. That's what we're reading here in 1 Chronicles 17. So this text is fitting in to this redemption. Promise to Eve, promise to Abraham, all of throughout the Bible focused on one, a son, born of a woman, yet God's son who would redeem God's people. And then we note in 1 Chronicles 17, eternal. That is, God's son wouldn't just come over and have a temporary reign as Saul did. Or as David did, he would reign forever. That's consummation. That is, God's salvation is an eternal one. His redemption is an unending one. God's redemption has a beginning point, but it has no end point. Right? God's redemption isn't like milk. It doesn't expire. Salvation isn't salvation if it ends. And so right here in the middle, we come upon one of the largest promises in the Bible that of a son who would come and redeem God's people forever. He would reign. This is what we sang this morning. He would reign forever. So that's where we are. In 1 Chronicles 17, the chapter itself is divided into two parts. The first 15 verses are God's promise to David. And then verses 16 to the end of the chapter are David's worshipful prayer response to God's promises. And it all hinges around this idea of building building. David, in the first couple verses, is presumptuous. God had delivered his people from Egypt. He had brought them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness into the promised land. They had largely defeated all their enemies. The first king, Saul, as you read in verse 13, sinned against God. God removed him, removed his love from him. Now he has established David. David was from one of the smallest tribes, an insignificant family, and the youngest of many sons. He was a nobody. And now he is God's ordained, appointed king over his people. David has been established on a throne. David, as you read in in verse verse 1 of chapter 17, dwells in a beautiful cedar home. He's got it good. And David, sitting in his nice home, thinks, hmm. I'll do something nice for God. 
So he goes to Nathan the prophet, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. That is, God's presence is in a tent. David wants to build God a house. David is presumptuous. David thinks more highly of himself than he ought. And then in verse 3, you have this unexpected but. After the first two verses, you don't expect a a, a verb that is going to change the direction. You would think this is a good thing. David coming to the Lord saying, I'm going to build you a house. You would think God would say, yes, David, do it. But in verse 3, we have a but. The tenor completely changes. The balloon deflates. The happy feelings evaporate. Kind of. Because this is what God does. This is always what God does. When he says no, when he says no to our good ideas, even if they're presumptuous, it's always because there's something infinitely greater. God says in effect, David, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a finite man building a house or the infinite God building your house? So God promises David that he would build David's house and it would stand forever. So this promise made to David of a descendant, right? Verse 11, I'll raise up one of your offspring after you and establish his kingdom Verse 12, he shall build a house for me and will establish his throne forever. Now, David's next son, Solomon, actually does build God's temple. And when Christ came, it had been rebuilt once. When Christ came, Christ said, there'll be a day when not one of these stones of the temple stands on another stone. It's going to be leveled. It's going to be raised. And so this promise here is partially fulfilled in Solomon, but then it's destroyed. That building is gone. So what house, what house has God built that will establish forever? What is he referring to? Christ and his people. We are God's household. We are living stones being built out of the foundation of Christ. We are the house that is being built that will endure forever in Christ. Christ said, I will build my house. I will, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's us. Now, the church hasn't replaced Israel. We are all God's people being built up in this most holy faith. God's promises are always fulfilled, and they're always fulfilled much greater than you ever thought they could be. This promise isn't just for an ethnic people, the Jews. This promise is for an ethnic people, the Jews will come to faith in Christ, and any people of any ethnicity will come to faith in Christ. That's what we are. God is fulfilling it, yes, and yes, in his son. So, that's what's going on in this chapter. And then in the last half of it, David responds with this great prayer, this worshipful prayer. Who am I, O Lord? Verse 16. 
So what I want to do is just camp a few minutes on the first half and learn something about who God is in relation to this new building here. Who is God? You will you see in verse 13 that God refers to himself as a father. So I want to relate everything that we're going to see in this text to God as father. I will be to him a father. So the reality is, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God is Father to Christ His Son. Now, Jesus Christ has no beginning. He wasn't born. He wasn't created. He has existed forever. And yet, in relationship, they're Father and Son. And so, all who have faith in God's Son have a Father in heaven also. That's us. So who is this father? Who is this father? There's a few things I want you to see. In verse 4, God the father is first the kind of father who says no to his son. He's a father who says no. David has a, a good desire, maybe a presumptuous desire to build God a house. And God the father says, son, no. I want you to build me a house. You guys know it's good when dad says no, right? It's a really good thing. If you have a father who says yes to you all the time, he is not loving you as he ought. Often, fatherly love is most loving when father is opposed to what you want or what you want to do. Those are the times when Father is often most loving because it's most difficult. And here God the Father is being a good, good Father. No, son, we're not going to miss church for basketball. No, daughter, you can't go out dressed like that. No matter if mom says you look cute. No church member, you can't have it your way. Elders sometimes say to the pastor, no pastor, you can't do that. Fathers are good when they say no because God the Father says no all the time. Even to something like this. Do you know our world is dying for those kind of fathers? Our world is dying For fathers who oppose their children, husbands who oppose their wives, elders who oppose the church. Our world is dying for it. See, we always have to learn what fathering is like from God the Father. Fathers are always learning what fatherhood is like by looking at God the Father. And God the Father is here, a father who says, no, The reason the church is failing is because church fathers refuse to say no to the people in their own churches. They refuse to say no to sin. They refuse to say no to divorce. They refuse to say no to sexual immorality. They refuse to discipline. They refuse to take responsibility. And so why would anybody come into the church when they can get that anywhere? And so Pine Grove, we're 
building a new building. We all have high expectations for lots of people to come. And do you know that a lot of people will come if we're, we're the kind of church that's willing to say no? If we're not trying to attract people, but trying to father them, they'll come. And they'll stay because you want to be fathered, don't you? Well, God the Father is like that. He'll say no. Second, in verse 5, God the Father is the kind of father who tents it. He doesn't have an RV. Here is God in heaven, the almighty God. He has chosen a people for his name, Israel. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and where did God dwell among them? In a tent. And now David says, hey, God's been dwelling in a tent among us. Let's build him a big house of cedar. And God says in verse 5, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel. I have gone from tent to tent. That is, this, this ought to blow your expectations away. God is great. God is holy. God is almighty. And he is no uh, arrogant kind of God. He comes among his people and he dwells in a tent. He doesn't demand the writs. He's not like a big-name Christian speaker that when he comes to speak at a big conference, demands a really nice hotel room. He'll just take a tent. Thank you very much. Now, this ought to, hopefully in Advent, connect you with Christ. God came and tabernacled, tented among us. God hasn't changed from here until then. God is the same God. He comes and he wants to dwell among his people. So the entire Bible is about God dwelling among his people, though they be sinners. And God himself came in the flesh, born of a virgin, born as a servant, a slave, to dwell among us, to tent among us. It's the kind of God we have. He is so gracious, so unthinkably near Verse 6, God is the kind of father who doesn't need anything from anyone. We aren't doing this first for God. God is first doing this for us. We have to keep this straight. We sang it when we sang, all I have is Christ. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. God tells David, I've never asked anyone for anything. I never asked you from the moment I redeemed you out of Israel. I didn't ask you in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I didn't ask you in the period of the judges. I never asked anyone to build me anything. Why? Because I first build for you. This is the very definition of grace. God must do it for us. God must first give to us. This means, as we see in verse 7 and throughout the rest of it, God does it all. Did you notice that I was reading this, how much I emphasized I will? Do you notice that? That is the repeated refrain throughout this first half of the chapter. Verse verse 8. I will make you a name. Verse 9, I will appoint a place for my people. 
Verse 10, I will subdue all of your enemies. Verse 11, I will raise up an offspring after you. Verse 12, I will establish his throne forever. Verse 13, I will be a father. Who's doing it? Who's building us a house that will last forever? If you're building it, it will fail. If we're trying to do it on our own way, by our own means, ignoring God's word on our own, it will fall flat. We need God to build us, not the other way around. You might notice here in verse 8 that God says, I will make for you a name. Naming is huge in the Bible. You might remember Adam God parading all the animals in front of him, and Adam was given the authority to name them. What was that showing? That was showing Adam's supremacy, his authority over the creation. We see this in marriage. It is a most biblical and Christian thing for the wife to be named after her husband, to take her husband's name. Showing submission of the wife and the authority of the husband. And all of this is showing God's supreme authority over us. He names us with his name. God changed some names throughout the Bible, right? He changed Abram to Abraham. Why? Because God owned him. He changed Jacob to Israel. Why? Because God owned him. He revealed to Moses his name with which we did name his people, Yahweh. Why? Because God redeemed them and owned them. When you were baptized, you were named. What were you named with? Baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is God doing there? He's naming you. He is declaring, this is my son. I've set my name upon him. He's mine. Let me ask you something. Did you do anything to obtain that? Did you contribute anything to that? Who's doing all of the work and all of this naming? God is. God is. And why is he doing this? To be with his people. Right now, we know God is here present with us. He does whatever he does in this world to bring himself glory as he dwells among his people. He has given us even this physical building so that we can gather on a weekly basis in God's presence. God is with us. And how is he with us? In what relation? Is he with us? I will be to them a father. So Pine Grove, as you are seated here, you are seated before your God, who is your father. Please don't ever forget this. This is the one thing we must keep before our face always. 
He is a Father who has made us an eternal covenant that He will never remove His love from us because He will never, ever, ever remove His love from His Son. The reason God will never forsake us is because in forsaking us, He would have to forsake His Son. The reason God will never abandon us because in abandoning His people, He would have to abandon His Son who are in His people. The reason God will never cease to love us and do us good is because he would have to cease to love and do good for his son, and we are in his son. And so you have an eternal father. And what is the father doing? What is the essence of fatherhood? What do fathers do? Fathers, what are you for? What you're for is just simply what God the Father is doing. And is for. What, what, what do fathers do? You build a household. You build a household, fathers, right? You marry. Well, first you woo, hopefully. You spend some money on some meals and you prove to this woman that you're going to love her and take care of her and provide for her and protect her. You woo her. You take her home and you bear children. And you build a household, and you love them, and you protect them, and you provide for them. You spend yourselves for them. You are there with them. You are their father. You care for them. You discipline them, but you love them. You'll give yourself for them. What is God the Father doing in this passage? He is building his household in Christ. And who is that? It's his church. It's his bride. It's all who call in the name of Jesus. That's what God the Father is doing, and that's what God the Father is doing even in the giving of this building. He is building up his people. That's what this is for. This is for the continuation and upbuilding of his people, his household. Fathers, what do you do when your little brood is outgrown your first home or apartment or basement of parents' home? God forbid. Sorry, guys. (laughs) What do you do? You work, right? And you try to provide a bigger home. That's what God the Father is doing. This is his kindness towards us. So why is he doing this? Well, let's get that from David's response. You'll notice... In David's response, we have much to learn here. First, David's response is just a prayer. Can I encourage you as you take this all in and enjoy this? In the the coming weeks, this is going to be like a honeymoon. This is going to be really fun. This is enjoyable. What's one thing we should do in response to this blessing? What can we learn from David? Let's pray. That's David's first response. It's not evangelism. We should do that, but that's not it. It's not a bunch of music. We should do that, but that's not it. First is on his knees in prayer before his God. Second, you have this note of humble awe. Look at verse 16. Who am I? This must be something that you feel in your bones. The first 
way that you feel this is in response to God's salvation of you. Why would God save you? You know you have nothing in of yourself to commend yourself. What did you have to contribute to God? What do you have to give him? And yet he spent his son on your behalf. And our first response should be, who am I? Who are we that God would do this for us? What is our church that he would do this for us? It's this this reverent awe and humility. This should be our constant refrain to every blessing we get from the Lord. You turn on a hot shower in the morning. Why do I get this? You gather in a new building, so beautifully portioned, gorgeous. Isn't this lovely? Isn't this warm? Who are we? I don't mean that you just learn to parrot that. I mean that you feel that deep in your being. We deserve nothing from God. We don't do anything that would earn this. Why does he give it to you? Because he's gracious, because he's generous. And so what do we do in response? Who are we? Who are we? And then he turns in this worship of God, verse 20. First it's prayer in this humble, adoring awe. Who are we? And then it's God, there is none like you, O Lord. He totally forgets about himself. He's just, who are you? What are you like? You're the one and only God. There's none like you. There's no God besides you. So, So you go from this prayerful, humble, who am I, to you are the Lord. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, to be in awe of him, to reverence him, to call on his name alone as the one true living God, is to forsake all other gods. You know that this is a statement of lordship here. There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God besides you. Translated, I will obey you only. I will forsake all others. Again, let's relate it to marriage. When you say, I do, you're saying no to everybody else. When you as a husband take your wife, you're saying no to every other woman on this planet. And vice versa. When we, when God comes and makes us anew and we confess Jesus is Lord, we're saying no to anything else that would rule us in this world. We're saying no to government ruling our lives. We're saying no to our children's success ruling our lives. We're saying no to money and wealth ruling our lives. We're saying no to sexual pleasure ruling our lives. Because there is only one God. And then David requests in verse 23 that God would do as he promised. And now, O Lord, let the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and that you would do as you've spoken in verse 23. Do it, O God. So learn from David's response here. First, prayer, 
then who are we? Then you are the only true living God. Then God do it. Notice how direct David is. He doesn't use a lot of words here. There's no need to pray 15-minute prayers when five seconds will do. God, you've promised it. God, do it. We're your people. What has God promised us? What has God promised us? I'm not talking about you waiting around for God and hearing a still small voice of some kind of promise for a four-wheeler or a new kitchen, any of that. That's probably you convincing yourself that God is saying you can have what you really want to have. Who cares? I'm talking about the biblical promises. What has God promised us? The earth. (laughs) Everything. Everything. We're, We're promised everything. And so what's our prayer? God, do it. May we remain faithful to you. God, do it. And lastly, David names why in verse 24. That your name would be established and magnified forever. That your name would be established and magnified forever. That your name would be established and magnified forever. In the parallel passage to this, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David names what he just says in, in less clear words here. David said, or, or God says, I will build you a house for my name. I will build you a house for my name. That's what we're here for, brothers and sisters. God is building a house for his name. And here's the really good news in that. There's one thing that God is committed to more than anything else in this world. It's his glory. And the way that God gets glory in this world is by building up his people. And so you can be assured that God will build up his people because he is utterly committed to his glory. And so you can have great confidence before the Father. You can have assurance that every promise of God will be true because God has tied his glory to us. Isn't that crazy? God has tied his eternal, infinite glory to schlubs like us. Like you, at least. And so you can have confidence that he'll do it. And it's already been given in Christ. It is completely ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, praise you for doing this great and good work and fulfilling all of these promises in your Son. Who is like you, O God? There is none like you. Who are we that you would do this for us? Who are we that you would be mindful of us, O God? And so, God, would you do it? Would you do all that you've said concerning us, your church? Would you glorify and magnify your name forever through us, your people? And so, God, please do it and do it now. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Just go simply rejoicing in the Lord. That's it. Enjoy all of his benefits. Be mindful of those who are suffering. Weep with them. 
but as you weep, rejoice in the Lord. The benediction I'm going to pronounce comes with an explanatory postscript in Numbers 627. After God pronounces the blessing, he, he writes, So shall they put them na- their name, my name upon themselves, and I will bless them. The benediction, too, is a naming ceremony where God's people take their, his name upon themselves. It's, it's put upon ourselves. We take it, and it's, t- it's put upon ourselves so that God might bless us. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, the peace that he's purchased, the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And amen.